The views expressed in the following program do not necessarily represent those of the staff, management, or owners of WGBB. Live from the WGBB studios in Merrick, New York, this is Sports Talk New York. Good evening and hello again, everybody. Welcome to Sports Talk New York on WGBB Merrick, Long Island, New York. Bill Donahue here. I'm taking you through the first hour on this Sunday night, the ninth day of May 2021. Our engineer, Brian Graves, is with us as always right across the way. Got a special show lined up for you tonight. Up first, we'll talk to one of the greatest hitters in baseball history, Hall of Famer Rod Carew. In the second half, we'll welcome in Mets beat writer for the New York Post, Mike Puma. He's got a new book out on the Mets, and we'll talk to him about that. So sit back, relax, get comfortable. Enjoy Sports Talk tonight on uh, Sports Talk New York tonight on GBB. As always, some great sports memories up ahead tonight. Well, our first guest simply is one of the finest hitters in Major League Baseball history. He was the American League Rookie of the Year in 1967, an 18-time All-Star, the AL MVP in 1977, batting 388. He amassed seven batting titles, almost eight, folks, a member of the 3,000-hit club. All his amazing accomplishments culminated in his first ballot election to the Baseball Hall of Fame in Cooperstown in 1991. The paperback version of his uh, really wonderful book, One Tough Out, Fighting Off Life's Curveballs, hits the stores on May 18th. It's a real pleasure and an honor to welcome to the show tonight, Rod Carew. Rod, good evening. Good evening, Bill. Good to be on, and thank you. No worries, Rod. It's a real honor, as I said, to, to uh, get you out here with us tonight. Now, as we know from your book, you're a native of Panama. Now, you were born on a train and named after the doctor who delivered you. Right. Amazing story. Well, now, my mom was uh, she was on her way to, to see the doctor, and um, I guess I wanted to come out and see what the, the world <laughs> was all about. Yeah. So she uh, gave birth. On, on this train that uh, we're going to the hospital. So um, quite a story. Yeah, amazing story. You guys can read more about that in the book. Now, you had to deal with an alcoholic father too, Rod, which couldn't have been easy, as we know. Many of us have to deal with that. What what kind of experience did you have there? Well, with me, you know, baseball took me away from that, and so did did my mom mm-hmm. um my dad wasn't interested in me wasn't interested in in me playing baseball so um we didn't have a very good relationship at all until the day he died we just couldn't make it up you know right we had a lot of bad years he did a lot of bad things to me and also he constantly beat my mom and uh you know i i just couldn't forgive him you know, before he passed away. Yeah. F- very, very tough. Uh, I can understand that, Rod. Now, at age 14, you and your siblings, you immigrate to the U.S. Uh, your mom uh, and you settle up in Washington Heights in Manhattan. Uh, you never played baseball for the high school team there, though, Rod, did you? No, I didn't. You know, uh, mm-hmm. actually, the the lady that brought me uh, to New York was the lady that uh, delivered me on the train, so she became my godmother. Ah, and and so she was a nurse at uh, St. Vincent's Hospital in New York, and um, she would go back and forth to Panama, and she heard that my uh, my dad was not doing good things to me, so she decided that she was going to get me away and uh, somehow get me back to New York and take care of me. And uh, it was a great move because, you know, it was I was able to do something that I always always wanted to do as a kid, and that's play baseball. Right. 
and you played for the Bronx Cavaliers. And from there, you were yeah. dis- discovered by uh, Monroe Katz, who was a scout for the Twins. And who were your heroes during those days, Rod? Uh, anyone you emulated, uh, maybe that developed a unique stance to help you develop that? No, you know, I never emulated anyone. To me, um, mm-hmm. you know, I just worked on the, the God-given talent that uh, God gave me. You know, he he gave me something to work with, and um, he told me not to not to waste it. To uh, take it and and go out and work on it, and uh, one day you'll be a star. So that's all I did for my career. You know, I worked every day. I took extra batting practice um, because I was never satisfied. Uh, you know, just with getting two hits or or three hits. I wanted four or five. So right. Uh, I just went out there and worked. And, and that you did. We're speaking with the great Rod Carew tonight on Sports Talk New York. Now, April 11th, 1967, a day that you, you probably remember, uh, Memorial Stadium against the Baltimore Orioles, your first, uh, hit in the major leagues. And it came in your first plate appearance. Yeah, I was facing, uh, Dave McNally. Wow. And, you know, they had yeah. just won they had just won the World Series and everything, and um, so I had four top guys I was going to face, you know, going into Baltimore. But, but when I got that first set of ground ball up the middle, um, I was happy, you know, because at least I got one hit. Right. It's, which led to many more. It, it sure did, Rod. That, that's definitely right. Now, I want to talk about a game. Uh, it was May eighth, nineteen sixty nine against the Tigers at, at Metropolitan Stadium in, in Minnesota. Cesar Tovar, the great Cesar Tovar, leads off with a base hit. Now, w- with you at the plate, Mickey Lolich balks, and Cesar moves over to second base. Then he stole third. You walked, and then a double steal with Tovar stealing home and you stealing second. Uh, that was right. the 41st time in Major League history and the 20th time in American League history that a runner had stole every base in an inning. You remember that day, Rod? Oh, yeah. That that was an exciting day. Yeah. And the thing that I thought about a lot was, you know, Mickey didn't seem to hold us on base. You know, he just went to the windup. So we timed his windup real well. And... When I when I was on first, I said to myself, "I'm I'm going to steal second, and then I'm going to steal third, mm-hmm. and then when I stole home, um, it it seems like no one was surprised because uh, Mickey didn't change anything. So I just took advantage of it, and I think Tovar and I stole five bases that that inning. So. Yeah, it was good for us, good for the ball club. Yeah, definitely. What a memorable inning that was. Now you stole home seven times in '69, uh, led the major leagues, and uh, the the record was Ty Cobb had with eight. And uh, your seven steals a home. It was the most since Pete Reeser stole seven for the Brooklyn Dodgers. Now Billy Martin used to work with you on stealing home. Rod, tell us a little bit about Billy's influence on you. Well, you know, Billy is the kind of guy that uh, he can make you upset or he'll take you and work with you and, and make you a better player by teaching you a lot of different things. And stealing home is one thing that he told me, that if we if, if he can get me to work on it, uh, maybe in the latter part of the game or, you know, ball game is tied up, or give us one more run, you know, we can um, do it and get away with it mm-hmm. and win ball games and tie ball games up. So I was able to do that because every day in spring training what we did was um, we went out and we worked with uh, different uh, pitchers, worked on their timing and how long it was going to get them to throw the ball to home plate. So. Uh, every single day, he said, pick your spots. So I tried to pick my spots like in the latter part of, part of the game because 
just the early parts I wanted to give the hitters the opportunity to swing bats and, and get their timing and, right. you know, get ready for spring training. Now, you played on some great Twins teams, Rod, in Minnesota. You had guys, uh, for those who uh, are uninitiated, the great Harmon Killebrew, Bob Allison, as we mentioned, Cesar Tovar, Zoilo Versailles, and, of course, the great Tony Oliva. Tell us a little bit about those great Twins ball clubs. Well, Tony, yeah, uh, he's still my best buddy today. A great hitter. You know, we're like, we're like brothers, mm-hmm. yeah, and what a great hitter and what a tremendous individual. You know, yeah. uh, Tony never said no to anyone. He would always stand around and sign autographs all night and, and talk to people. Um, and we're still good friends today, and he hasn't changed. Harmon Killebrew and I used to, um, we had a ice cream eating contest <laughs> because he heard that I, I used to eat a lot of ice cream, so... He says, one day we're going to go out and we're going to see who can eat the most ice cream. <laughs> well, I told Harmon, I said, buddy, I said, you don't have a chance. He <laughs> says, well, I can eat a lot. I said, well, I can eat a lot more. You know, I yeah. ended up eating, I don't know, maybe uh, two gallons. Wow. <laughs> and it, the more I ate, the more he kept laughing at me, and I says, "I told you." But yeah. um, we had a we had a great a great time. I had a uh, a great time learning from Harmon, you know. And one of the things that I I do today, still live with, is he once he used to call me Junior, and he looked at me and he says, "Junior, you have a lot of talent. You got a long way to go." And the one thing that I want you to remember is. It doesn't cost anything to be nice to people. Mm-hmm. And that's what I've tried to do uh, even today. I have time for people. I make time for people, and um, I enjoy it, you know, because it, we're given the opportunity to um, to make a lot of people feel good about themselves and have a great day. You know, a guy might be having trouble at work, and it gives them the opportunity to come out to the ballpark and boo me if I don't get a hit or if I make a bad play. But um, it was all in, in, in good fun. And so that's the way I looked at it. Baseball is baseball, and uh, it, it's it's a game that we allow people to uh, just come to the ballpark and have a good time when they when they feel they need they need it. Exactly, and and that's the way it should be, Rod. Very well said. Rod Carew with us tonight on Sports Talk New York. 1977, Rod, you bat 388, the highest since Ted Williams hit that in 57. Uh, you end up on the cover of Time magazine. Now, that had to be a thrill. Well, you know, that was a year. It was a very uncanny year, Bill. Uh, it seems like. You know, everything I hit found a hole. And I remember a lot of times standing at home plate and the pitchers getting ready to, you know, release the pitch. And sometimes I would see the infielders move a little bit. And I'd hit the ball maybe in the spot that they moved from or just a little bit away from them, and they couldn't make a play. So um, I don't know why. You know, as a hitter, you pick those things up because you're so focused on looking at the middle of the diamond, you know, where the pitcher is uh, delivering the ball from. Mm -hmm. And in 85, well, you you got your 3,000 hit rod in 85 against Frank Viola. You were with the California Angels then. But you came up against collusion in 1985. This is something that we spoke at length uh, to Andre Dawson about. He was a victim of this. Tell us a little bit about how the owners colluded during that year. Well, they did because, Mm -hmm. um, you know, they were still making a lot of money. But they found a way to uh, not keep guys around, not pay them the type of salary that they should have been earning. And um, 
it was the worst thing that happened in baseball towards the players because, you know, at the time, we were fighting about our um, our insurance policies and and things like that. We didn't want more money. It was more about keeping what we had, and they were about taking it away from us. So uh, we had to go out in a couple of strikes to, uh, to maintain what we had, what we had worked so hard uh, to have for the families. And, you know, it's, 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 I'm glad we did because, you know, in the later years, my youngest child, uh, Michelle, was 18 years old. And she contacted uh, leukemia right. and passed away when she was when she was 18. And be, because of the baseball insurance, you know, I was able to practically pay nothing uh, because baseball picked up just about everything uh, for me. So for that, I will forever be thankful and grateful. Major League Baseball for what they did for me and my family. Certainly. Now, one thing I want to go back to, Rod, during the 60s, uh, I did not know this about you, that you served six years in the United States Marine Corps Reserve as a combat engineer. Now, the, the, this uh, also helped you in your baseball career, didn't it? Oh, yeah. You know, I received so much help when I was in the Marine Corps. And the things that I learned uh, have stayed with me for such a long time. You know, I I worked hard. I I learned about discipline. I learned about treating people the way I wanted to be treated. And um, it was the greatest experience for me. And I've always said that every young man should get an opportunity to go into the service and learn a lot of things that would help them, you know, with their future. So, yeah, I, I was very happy about that. Definitely. Once a Marine, always a Marine. That's it. Semper Fi. That's it, Rod. Yes. Semper Fi. <laughs> Rod Carew with us tonight on Sports Talk New York. Now, you were, uh, all, all the accolades and honors that you accumulated throughout your career, Rod, you, you ended up being a first ballot Hall of Famer. Uh, I had read where you said your greatest honor was receiving the Roberto Clemente Award. Yes, that the, the Roberto Clemente Award is the award that stands out uh, among all the awards that I've received, you know, during my playing days. Um, it was an award that was given to a player every year for the work that he did in the community, and. I went out there every chance the ball club wanted me to do something because it was important. And I, I visited kids, uh, I visited elderly people, everyone that um, needed me to put a smile on their face, I went and did that. You know, I, I, I visited this 11-year-old kid once, and he had just gone through uh, a burn. He was a burn victim. Mm-hmm. So I'm standing outside his room, and he's crying. I'm, I'm, he's saying, I'm sorry, Mr. Carew, I'm sorry, Mr. Carew, and he's crying because he knew that I was uh, outside the door. But what they were doing was giving him a bath. Oh. And so after I was, you know, let him to see him, he, he started complaining, and I said, don't complain. I know what you're going through, and I, I know how it hurts, but... You know, they're going to get you better, and you're going to be out at the stadium, you know, watching ball get watching us play again. So, you know, I'm here to talk to you and spend some time with you. And we had a great time. And this, this, when I left the room, he had the biggest smile on his face. So <laughs> I felt like I did something very important that day. Wonderful story, Rod. Yes, definitely. Now, one thing you're doing these days, Rod, is uh, you've established an online presence. You have a new Facebook account for those folks uh, who'd like to check that out. You're on Twitter now, and you have a new website, uh, rodcarew.com. Tell us a little bit about your social media presences. Well, you know, I uh, kept myself low-key for so many years. Mm -hmm. <coughs> Excuse me. And then my son became 
my agent after the guy that I was with for almost, uh, well, 40 years uh, was going to retire. So my son was in business school, and then after he graduated, um, we talked about him being doing some work for me. And he, he talked about Twitter and websites. I said, listen, you know, who wants, who wants me to be out there and, and, you know, doing that stuff? He said, Dad, you have a lot of fans, and they appreciated what you did for baseball. And it would be nice for you to get out there and say, say hello to them. Right. So we started doing this, and um, it's it's been exciting. It's it's something I never thought that uh, that I would do, but you know, here I am doing it, and I'm I'm really enjoying myself, Bill. You you certainly are. You you're posting some great stuff out there, Rod. As I said, folks, check it out. Rod Carew's Facebook page. Uh, his Twitter account, and RodCarew.com. Some tremendous stuff out there from really one of the immortals in Major League Baseball. Uh, before we leave, Rod, I just want to uh, check with you your greatest memory. What would that entail? Well, you know, guys look for their first base hit as the most memorable, memorable thing that they've done in the game. And the, the biggest thing I find about myself, about being in the game, is I never thought that I would be in the same company as Ty Cobb, Willie Mays, Harmon Killebrew, uh, Ted Williams, and some of the greats of the game. You know, I, I just played the game for the fun of, of doing it, and I, I was able to maintain some consistency, and um, all the awards that, that came my way, I was appreciative because people saw what I was doing and the, the main thing I think that people really liked about me was that I loved to go to hospitals and, and schools and, and visit kids mm-hmm. and, and talk to kids to let them know that um, if you have a dream it'll come true all you have to do is work at it and one day you'll realize those dreams Exactly correct, Rod. And take my word for it, as your fans and I can attest, you belong in Cooperstown with those folks you mentioned. Uh, you, your performance and your career speaks for itself. It, it's been an honor and a pleasure having you with us tonight, Rod. Thanks for taking time out of your Sunday night to spend some with us here in New York. Uh, I, get, I thank uh, your son, your beautiful wife, Rhonda, for helping set this up. And I want to mention the book again. The book, folks, it's out in hardcover now. You can get it on Amazon. It comes out in paperback on May 18th. It's titled One Tough Out, Fighting Off Life's Curveballs by the Great Rod Carew. Thanks again, Rod. You're welcome, Bill. You know, and what's funny, mm-hmm. the title of the book, was given to me by Reggie Jackson. Ah. Uh, yeah, you, because we're good friends and he, he thought about it and so he, he mentioned, you know, one tough out. So I said, okay. And, um, it, it's, it's good reading. It sure good is. Reading. I agree. And yeah. So I hope that, uh, people take the chance and, you know, buy it for their kids too so that they can look into what we were doing as players and into what we're doing now uh, while we've been uh, retired. Definitely, Rod. Some great life lessons in that book. Again, Rod, I thank you, and all the best to you and your family. Thank you, Bill, and uh, maybe one day we can do this again. Yes, I I agree. Let's do it again, Rod. I'll stay in touch with with Devin. Okay. All the best. That's the great Rod Carew, ladies and gentlemen. Up next on Sports Talk New York, we speak with Mike Boomer of the New York Post about his new book, If These Walls Could Talk, stories from the New York Mets dugout, locker room, and press box. So stay with us, folks.
You're listening to Sports Talk New York. Tune in every Sunday night at 8 p.m. on Long Island's WGBB. Broadcasting on 95.9 FM and 1240 AM. Or listen live online at WGBBradio.com. Stay connected to Sports Talk New York on WGBB by following us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at WGBB Sports Talk. You're listening to Sports Talk New York on Long Island's WGBB. And now, back to the show. All right, we are back, folks, with Sports Talk New York on WGBB here in beautiful downtown Merrick, Long Island. Great to speak with Hall of Famer Rod Carew on the show tonight. Uh, a, a real baseball legend, as I said, with some life experiences that he uh, recounts in his book. Really tough, some amazing. They're all in that book. You should check that out, folks. I just want to let you know I'm heading out to City Field for the Wednesday matinee against the O's this week, and it's Harvey Day. Matt Harvey's going to face the Mets on Wednesdays. That'll be interesting. Well, let's keep the sports memories rolling along here. Our next guest, he covers the Mets for the New York Post. He's been the beat reporter since 2010. He has a new book out from our friends out at Triumph Books in Chicago. It's called If These Walls Could Talk, Stories from the New York Mets Dugout, Locker Room, and Press Box. Let's welcome in the Fordham Flash himself, Mike Puma. Mike, good evening. Hey, how you doing? Thanks for having me on. <laughs> Great to have you, Mike. Now, I want to uh, check with you and ask you, tell us a little bit about the journey that brought you to the position of Mets beat writer for the Post. Well, it goes back, uh, I mean, you mentioned my uh, my Fordham pedigree, and, uh, you know, I, I graduated from Fordham in the early 90s, and I actually wanted to do broadcasting. Okay. And... Uh, you know, I, I went back home to uh, Connecticut, uh, Waterbury, uh, where I grew up, and uh, I went back to Connecticut and started doing some play-by-play of high school football, and I got involved in ESPN Radio just as they were launching in the early 90s, doing some uh, part-time production work for them. So I had a couple of things going, uh, you know, on the weekends as far as uh, uh, broadcasting opportunities. ESPN Radio was only a weekend uh, operation at that point. So, uh, I, you know, I needed something to do during the week. And I answered an, uh, actually answered an ad in the uh, local paper up there, the Waterbury paper. They were looking for part-time sports clerks. And I didn't have any writing experience at all. But uh, the sports editor had heard me doing the uh, high school football broadcast and thought, I, you know, maybe I had something to add to the section uh, mm-hmm. with my knowledge of the, the local high school team. So uh, I, that's how I got involved in print. And uh, it kind of took off and, and grew from there. I went to the Connecticut Post in the late 90s, and that's where I, that's in Bridgeport, I started covering uh, Major League Baseball in the late 90s, uh, 98. And uh, I went to the New York Post in 2007, uh, kind of as a backup guy on the Yankees and Mets, and I've been on the Mets beat since 2010, as you mentioned. Nice. Uh, nice nice little career there mike that's for sure now i want to talk a a little bit about the the current happenings with the mets uh the recent firing of chili davis and tom slater now i felt the that whole donnie stevenson thing the concoction i thought that kind of undermined chili and tom and uh it's sort of like the players were making light of the, the fact uh that Chili Davis and Tom Slater may may not be doing what they were supposed to, and then you get Pete Alonso crying when the firings are announced. I just want to know your take on that. Yeah, I, I don't think that. And I talked to Chili Davis uh, last week after the after the firings took place, and mm-hmm. he didn't think there was any harm uh, meant by the players there that they were having fun. Okay, uh, you know, blowing off a little steam. But, you know, as he mentioned to me in the article, it probably didn't help his cause. And, you know, it's probably one of those things that you, it just piles on at that point. And I, I think even before the Donnie Stevenson stuff came out, the wheels were in motion uh, to make this change. But, it, you know, it, it was kind of a bad look, uh, you know, for, from the clubhouse. And 
I, I know most of these guys, a good number of these guys had strong relationships with, uh, Chili Davis and, uh, and, and Tom Slater and, and they didn't want to see him go. So I, and, you know, I, I tend to agree with, with Chili there that there wasn't any, uh, malicious intent by the players, but it, it just kind of turned out looking, uh, badly. It, it sure did. Yeah. Now, another thing that, that people can take either way is the tunnel story. With the raccoon and the rat, the confrontation between Francisco Lindor and Jeff McNeil. Have you spoken to these guys about that? No, you know we haven't, and yeah, that one that one's a little bit tougher to swallow, just because they're they're you know they're putting out something that obviously didn't happen, and uh, you know to to uh, Luis Rojas' credit, Zach Scott's credit, they they backed away from that story themselves. They're not going to perpetuate it. And, mm-hmm. you know, you, you, you almost, if Lindor and McNeil weren't going to talk about it, the way to approach it would have been to say, listen, guys, something happened. Uh, well, you know, it stays in the clubhouse. This is not something we're going to discuss publicly. Right. That's it. You, you, you don't go off the rails with stories about uh, rats and raccoons and possums and whatever else. You know, it's just, Kind of, kind of made a mockery of the thing. The, the way to handle it would have just been to acknowledge that something happened. You don't have to, don't have to get into great detail about what happened and just say, listen, that's it. We're not talking about it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with you 100%, Mike. Now, can, can you fill us in a little bit on, uh, some of the, uh, walking wounded, the, some of the injury IL guys, uh, that, that we're, uh, missing? Nimmo, JD, Noah, Lugo, Guillaume. What's the latest on some of these guys? Yeah, it's, it's a lot of guys, and uh, we haven't got an update on Nimmo and Davis in recent days. Uh, they should be nearing uh, the end of their uh, 10-day stint here by uh, you know by the end of this homestand. Um, I'm not sure if, how close either one of them is at this point. Um, you know, the pitchers, I think we have a little bit more certainty at this point that it's still going to be a while. Uh, uh, you know, the big surprise, I think, last week was Carrasco because uh, we thought he was close here, that he might be within a, a minor league rehab start of, of rejoining the team. And right. he's, he's been pushed back. We're not, we're not going to see him until at least June now. And then uh, you got Lugo, who's uh, on the verge of facing live batters down in Florida. He's probably end-of-the-month guy. Syndergaard is... You know, it doesn't seem like anything has changed lately with him as far as the uh, mid-June timetable. Uh, Guillaume, uh, I don't know if we'll see him this week. It's, it's probably at least next week for him. Uh, the big thing we're, we're, we're going to monitor now is based on what happened today with Jacob DeGrom walking off the field after the fifth inning and, uh, with some lower back uh, tightness. So, right. Um, you almost think at this point, just uh, here on the side of caution, they, they put him on the injured list after the week he's had. This is the, you know, this is the second thing he's had uh, in less than a week. The guy can't catch a break sometimes, Mike. That's a, that's the situation with Jake, <laughs> right? Oh man, tough luck, tough luck for the guy. Uh, let, let's get to the book now. If these walls could talk, the Met stories from the dugout, locker room, and press box. Interesting, I found that the the forwards uh, were from Keith Hernandez and Hank Azaria. How, how did you uh, get Hank Azaria to take care of this for you? You know, Hank is a big Mets fan, right? And um, he actually he actually follows me on Twitter. Ah, okay. So I, I, didn't, I didn't have a previous relationship with him, but I, I just reached out to him on Twitter. Um, you know, and he uh, he agreed to do it, and I, I thought he did it. I thought he did it terrific job with the forward. I think it captures all of uh, the essence of, uh, of being a Mets fan. And and Keith, obviously, I, I've known for, you know, all these years I've been covering the beat, being around the ballpark with him and everything. And he was, he was terrific to uh, come on and do it. And I, I thought both of them, Hank and uh, Keith, they, they, they certainly added something to the book. They, they did real nice jobs with the forwards. Definitely, yeah, that certainly adds to the book, Mike, for sure. Now, in this book, folks, uh, you'll find anecdotes from uh, and some new interviews with uh, famous Mets like uh, Piazza, of course, David Wright, R.A. Dickey. Tell us a little bit about uh, your relationship with Mike Piazza, Mike. 
Well, Piazza, now, he goes back to before I was on the beat. I was, you know, I was still working in Connecticut at the time, and I, I got to know him a little bit uh, being around the ballpark, and he, he, he kind of remembered me over the years, and then, you know, when I when I got on the beat, uh, you know, I, I, I got to know him. Uh, now, at that point, he, he was retired, but um, I got to know him uh, better in the, as, as it's as was going on over the years here, you know, that relationship's built a little bit. And he uh, he sat down with me in spring training in 2020. It was actually probably about a week before spring training shut down for the pandemic. And, uh, you know, we talked for about an hour, and he, he really went into some great detail about, uh, you know, his, his first years with the Mets, what that was like coming over in the trade with uh, the Marlins, and right down the line, everything from his relationship with Bobby Valentine to, uh, obviously the big home run in the first game after 9-11 and, and uh, you know, his later years with the Mets uh, where he was on the decline a little bit. Yeah, some great stuff from Mike Piazza, folks. And uh, he, he uh, does bear all about his relationship with Bobby Valentine, which I found really interesting. And uh, how about David Wright? He goes back to before your tenure as well. Yeah, now Wright came up in 2004, but I also covered him for a, a good chunk of his career the last you know, seven, eight years. Now he was, he was, uh, injured for a good portion of that, you know, with the, the spinal stenosis and trying to make his way back. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the, it, it, you're talking about the zero, which the book covers, which is, uh, pretty much two decks from the late 90s on to basically Wright's retirement at the end of 2018. And, you know, you're, you're really talking about the David Wright era here. And, he, you know, he talks about, uh, he was obviously there in 06 uh, when they lost in Game 7 of the NLCS to the Cardinals. And, the, uh, you know, the meltdown years at the end of 07 and 08. And then, you know, right, right in through the uh, rebuild and, and, and the World Series year in 2015. So uh, Wright, Wright was an invaluable guy uh, when doing this project. Yeah, I can see that. The, you can't really mention Mets in, in that era without talking about David Wright, that's for sure. Uh, the firing of Bo- Bobby Valentine, Mike. Let's talk a little bit about that. Yeah, so I, I go into a little bit detail about that in my book. I had never heard this story before until I, um, uh, I talked to Bobby. Uh, and uh, basically, the end of the 2002 season, now you remember that was, that was not a good year for the Mets. That was after they'd gone out and gotten Mo Vaughn and Robbie Alamon or yeah. brought back Jeremy Burnett and you know, none of it none of it worked out. But end of end of the O two season, Bobby Valentine says that Fred Wilpon told him, uh, you know, you can plan on coming back next year as manager. So at the end of the season, this is this is probably a couple of days before the end of the season, right at the end of the season. So the end of the season, Valentine had, had his uh, coaches meeting, and Fred Wilpon asked if Jeff Wilpon could sit in on the meeting. Now, this was, you know, Jeff was just kind of getting immersed in the organization at this point. It was uh, right after uh, the Wilpons had bought out uh, Nelson Doubleday to take full control of the club. So Valentine agreed to let Jeff Wilpon sit in on the meeting, and without going into too much detail, because I understand something. Something went amiss in that meeting, uh, you know, Jeff, with Jeff Wilpon loving Valentine the wrong way and uh, Valentine expressing his uh, disenchantment to Fred Wilpon. And uh, after that, Valentine claimed Fred Wilpon told him he was fired. That was, you know, a, a, probably a day or two after the coaching meeting. And Valentine remains convinced it was that coaches meeting uh, with, with Jeff Wilpon involved that got Valentine fired. Amazing, yeah. That's probably true. That the the Wilpons definitely leave a stamp upon the the ball club, which is uh, not too favorable. Now, the 2001 season, we have the return to New York City of Major League Baseball uh, after 9/11, and I know Jay Horowitz in his book says that uh, that's probably one of his crowning moments in his career. Talk to us a little bit about coming back after 9-11, Mike. Yeah, and uh, one thing I, uh, that struck me, I think just the pride the Mets had in being that team that came back and got to play first. You know, I quote Alan 
basketball could say, you know, I'm glad it was us and not the Yankees. You have all these emotions leading up to that Friday night game at that Shea Stadium. The Braves are in town. Um, you have uh, the backpipes blaring. You have the emotion of fans chanting USA. And, uh, you know, Piazza telling me that he just wants to get through that game. He just wants to survive and, 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 and not look silly. Mm-hmm. Uh, because he, he's so jittery going into that game, and you know he's in tears uh, pregame, and um, you know comes along and, and he ends up hitting you know one of the biggest home runs in New York City baseball history, and uh, it, it, you know as he says it, it was a different kind of home run. It wasn't a home run that won the pennant or the World Series or anything like that. It was kind of a, a home run that brought New York City back, right? And uh, yeah. I think that's an, that's an emotional portion of the book. And I, I, I've got people that reached out to me on Twitter that were saying they were reading that chapter and uh, were crying themselves reading it. So nice. uh, a lot of emotion there. Definitely. We're speaking with Mike Puma of the New York Post tonight about his new book about the New York Mets from Triumph Sports. Uh, Johan Santana's no-hitter, Mike. Now, I've been a Met fan for, for about 50 years, and... Uh, uh, I tend to think even a no hitter the Mets can't do correctly. I mean, to me, it's 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 it's, it's kind of tainted, you know. What's your feelings on that? Yeah, well, listen, there, there was the, the call on the Beltran ball that was obviously a fair ball, but listen, it's a no hitter. Yeah, I, I look at it as it counts. Um, and I had I had a lot of fun writing that chapter, just taking it from various perspectives, whether it was Bob Ojeda, who was uh, doing uh, the studio analysis that night from, for SNY, or uh, my colleague at the Post, Mike McConnell, mm-hmm. who had uh, uh, never seen a no-hitter, the last out of a no-hitter before in person, and, you know, he got his ritual of every time a, a, a New York team had a pitcher who took a no-hitter into the sixth inning, he would hop into his car and, and drive to the ballpark hoping to... Uh, to catch uh, those final outs of the no hitter, and this night, uh, you know, he got to see it. So, uh, yeah, that Santana no hitter chapter was a lot of fun to write. And you know, another thing I, I point out, Keith Hernandez at the end of the game said, he, you know, he looks over to his left, and uh, he was shocked to find Gary Cohen was in tears, uh, yeah, emotional about the moment. Definitely, yeah, the it was a memorable evening, despite. The Beltron uh, double down the line. That was kind of miscalled, but uh, a no hitter nonetheless, as we said, Mike. Now, uh, what was your? So, let, let's talk about some of your favorite stories that that you uh, tell in the book. Well, you know, yeah, I mentioned that Valentine's story with the, with the, the meeting with Jeff Wolf. Another another one is Noah Syndergaard talked to me extensively for the book, and now Syndergaard hasn't spoken too much in the last year and a half and he was he was gracious enough to give me a, a significant uh, chunk of time and he, he brought up that uh, the torn lap in, in 2017 um, when uh, the, the Mets had insisted he go for an MRI but anyway he had bulked up in, in spring training that year as many people remember came, came, to, came to camp looking huge and he says um he, you know, after consulting uh, with a personal trainer and a soft uh, tissue specialist, he had a good idea going into the season that he was high risk to tear that lat. Mm-hmm. Um, that's something he never conveyed to the Mets. You know, I talked to Sandy Alderson and Terry Collins about it. They they were surprised to find out that Syndergaard was, uh, uh, when I mentioned it to him, to find out that Syndergaard was a high risk to tear his lat that year. Uh, so Syndergaard kept that from him, went out and pitched, and uh, that started at the end of April in Washington, tore the lap, and uh, kind of all hell broke loose on the on the Mets season. Yeah, the injury bug was, was was quite the talk of the town, that's for sure. Now, we spoke earlier, Mike, a little bit about the collapses of 2007 and 2008. Uh, still sticks in my craw about... Uh, those particular years. Did you have a chance to talk to Jerry Manuel about those uh, collapses? I, I didn't, you know, I couldn't track down Jerry Manuel. The, the two guys from that era that I did speak to, Billy Wagner, mm-hmm. uh, 
Tom Glavin, you know, and Glavin talked to me about his whole comment about, uh, you know, not being devastated that that final game of uh, the old seven season and said he's still catching flack uh, from Mets fans, uh, you know, because it, it, it kind of uh, sent the perception that he didn't care. But he says, you know, of all the stuff he made in his career, he says that's the one he wishes he could go back and do over again because he was embarrassed by the over the way he put it. He was pissed about it, and uh, he wishes he could have that start over more than uh, any other in his career. Billy Wagner was very forthcoming about, uh, you know, those years, 07 and 08, and uh, he, he, he was a straight shooter in the book. He, he gets into detail. You know, he's never really spoken at great length about uh, uh, Lasting's millage and, uh, you know, yeah. the, the note that was put in Lasting millage locker, know your place book, and, he went into great detail with me about uh, kind of what, you know, admitting that he put the, the note in, in, in Millage's locker and uh, and why he did it. Again, uh, Mike Puma with us. Just just one of the great stories in, in his new book uh, from Triumph Sports. And let's talk a little bit about some of the characters that you've covered uh, through, through your uh, tenure with the Mets, Mike. Um we have a guy like Turk Wendell. Uh, let's talk about some of the unique personalities. Let's put it that way. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, one of them, yeah, I just mentioned one of them was Wagner, who's been much smoother than anybody. Right. And, uh, you know, I think Rick Peterson has a comment in the book that says, you know, if it, if it came into Billy's mind, it came out of his mouth, you know, that there was no filter. Another guy, Jeff Francoeur, who, uh, my first season on the beat, 2010, uh, Frenchy, Jeff Francois was there and he was just, uh, he was something else with the media and, he, you know, he was a, a guy, another guy, a straight shooter who would offer uh, honest assessments on everything and, uh, you know, he relays an anecdote in the book, uh, about, uh, I won't go into detail about this one either, but about Carlos Beltran, uh, faking a cake while he was on the disabled list mm-hmm. and kind of how to, Jeff Wilpon, uh, what Jeff Wilpon thought about that, you know, Beltran baking a cake during the game. Yeah, a- another great, great uh, incident there. Now, the 2000 Subway Series, Mike, uh, a great disappointment. I mean, it would have been the Yankees' worst nightmare if if the Mets had knocked them off in 2000 during that Subway Series. But uh, a kind of a disappointing showing, much, much like 2015 was. Let's talk a little bit about the Subway Series. Yeah, and the Subway Series, you know, I, I think the Mets really feel, uh, you know, history shows that it was 4-1 to one Yankees. But, you know, you go back to talk to the people uh, involved in that. They really feel that it was, you know, maybe the closest five-game World Series in history. Mm-hmm. If you go back and think about it, all those, you know, it's about all those games were tight, could have gone either way. Uh, you know, you had you had game one where the, you know, the Mets probably should have won that game with uh, with the Timo Perez uh, base running gaff and, and Benitez blowing it later on. Um, you know, you had another game uh, you, uh with Derek Jeter hit the leadoff, you know all those games. Game five goes down to that Piazza at back. You thought he was hitting it out over Bernie Williams at the center field. Um, so you talked that you talked to the Mets of that era, and I think the guys I primarily talked to were uh, uh, Piazza and Al Leiter, Eduardo Alfonso, Valentine, Steve Phillips. Uh, you know they'll tell you they were right there with the Yankees and, and, and thought they should have won it. Right. Well, take us. I I often wondered, Mike, uh, what what a day is like for a guy like you uh, going to the ballpark every day. Tell us a little bit about what a day is like for Mike Puma. Well, I mean, it's been different the last two seasons than uh, you know it was before that, just because we don't have the the pregame clubhouse access uh, with the COVID restrictions. You know, right now it's you get to the ballpark though uh, for a seven o'clock game. You still get there about three thirty, and they're doing pregame uh, Zoom calls with the managers and players they make available. And uh, you know, you're writing pregame stories. And to the post, 
Uh, I have to have two stories written uh, for a night game. I have to have two stories written before the first pitch that go in our early edition. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a lot of work that goes into it before uh, even the game starts. And then uh, as, as the game goes on, you're kind of writing as it goes on because you've got another deadline, that uh, a second deadline, basically, that coincides uh, with shortly after the game ending. And then, you know, you get a final deadline where you get to rewrite some stuff after you talk uh, to the manager and players uh, post-game again on Zoom. But it, it, it's definitely a lot different dynamic uh, than not having the clubhouse access. You're not able to do the one-on-one stuff, uh, you know, that, that, that makes the job uh, as, as rewarding as it can be. Correct. Yeah, definitely. I can definitely see that, Mike. Now, we, we have a couple of minutes uh, throughout your tenure with the New York Mets, what's your greatest memory? What, what do you uh, count as, as your greatest memory of the New York Mets? Uh, the 12 seasons I'm thinking about, you know, it, it's probably got to be the, the, the 2015 World Series. Yeah. You know, just uh, the, the way those, those last couple of months unfolded uh, with all the moves Sandy Alderson made uh, before the trade deadline and that Jasperis coming on board and the way they caught fire down the stretch. Um, you know, I, one of the great games I ever covered, I, I, I go back to that game five of the National League Division Series against the Dodgers uh, when Daniel Murphy hit that home run to put him ahead. Mm-hmm. You know, DeGrom had been shaky a little bit earlier and then steadied it. And that that was just, uh, you know, that was probably the defining game of that postseason, that game five against the Dodgers. And what, what an emotional series that was with, uh, uh, you know, the Chase Utley slide, break Ruben Tejada's leg. Right. Uh, the back and forth. And, uh, you know, and then, uh, you know, then you had the NLCS with the sweep. And, uh, you know, the World Series a little bit anticlimactic. Uh, but, um, you know, still enough twists and turns. which should, you know, Matt Hardy's have stayed into the ninth inning in game five. And so, you know, I... That's got to be the highlight. That couple of months stretch there, where they they just kind of put it together and kind of came out of nowhere a little bit to uh, get to the World Series. Right, definitely great answer. Let's not forget the whole Wilmer Flores situation during that time too, right, yeah. Mike? Yeah, <laughs> what a <laughs> tremendous series of events that was and then to have Wilmer walk it off for us uh, just amazing well Mike Puma thanks for being with us tonight thanks for taking time out of your Sunday night to be with us out here on the island the book again folks from Triumph Sports is titled If These Walls Could Talk Stories from the New York Mets Dugout I lost that there I go Locker Room and Press Box thanks again Mike Thanks for having me on. Take care. That's Mike Puma, folks. Well, that'll do it for me tonight on Sports Talk New York. I'd like to thank my guests, Rod Carew and Mike Puma, my engineer, Brian Graves, and, of course, you folks for joining us. See you next week when I'll welcome in former Yankee Ron Bloomberg and Phil Sklar. He's the co-founder and CEO of the National Bobblehead Hall of Fame and Museum. So till then, this is Bill Donahue telling you to be safe, be well, and wishing you a good evening, folks. The views expressed in the previous program did not necessarily represent those of the staff, management, or owners of WGBB.